Good evening. It's interesting, Keith started the way we, we didn't uh, dialogue, but that's perfect for what I'm going to be talking about this evening. Um, I've had several conversations uh, in the last couple of weeks. People wonder why. Why is evil allowed? Why is the wickedness of people allowed to go to this extent? And I don't have all the answers, folks. I'm not here to say, well, this is why. But I do want to share with you two different, really three different perspectives, two from the Old Testament, that deal with that very question, people asking why. In two very different scenarios, and two very different situations, but both of them come up with the question of, why do the wicked prosper? Why? Why do you allow that, God? And, you know, one of the things that's neat to me is when you read the, the scriptures, especially in the Psalms, and even as we're going to see tonight from Habakkuk, God is big enough to take that question. And he's big enough to be there to, to not necessarily give you an answer, I think, that says, oh, I fully understand, but to give us an answer to say, God is in control. And that's what I want to share this evening. Um, let's begin, though, with a word of prayer together. Father, we thank you for your presence and your provision in every time and every place and every circumstance. And Father, we don't get it. everything that goes on in this life. Is un- there are so many things that are unfair, unjust. So many times we ask why. But God, in the midst of those questions, first of all, I'm glad that you allow us and you want us to ask those questions. And Father, in your scriptures, you also give us indications of of what it means to trust you in all places and times and circumstances, in the times of the highs and in the times of the lows, to know that you are in control. Father, help us to learn that lesson each day. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Um, To start out, I actually went to the Ukraine in 2006. Um, I was there on a mission trip, just me. I went to a church in Odessa, a Baptist church, about, not in Odessa, but about an hour and hour and a half away from Odessa, uh, towards the southern area of the Ukraine. The best Grapes I have ever had. It spoiled me from eating grapes in the here. I've never had a grape that I can say tastes any better than what I had there. And I went, they were in season, everything was in harvest, and it, it just spoiled me. Store grapes mean nothing anymore. Um, it was very much an agricultural area. Uh, Ukraine has a lot of agricultural, especially in that area. It was called during the Soviet Union times the breadbasket for the Soviet Union. One of the reasons I think he wants it back is that very reason. But even when I was there in 2006, working with those, uh, church, that church and, and with an interpreter and getting to know other Christians, there was, even in 2006, the question was, when? When is he coming back? When are they coming back? Because they knew it was going to happen. It was just a matter of time. And think about, here we are, 2022, and they were still, 
that, that time of, of that oppression that's always there. The question of when. And that would be a hard way to live life. And that's what they've had to live through. You know, these two uh, stories I'm going to tell you of these people, they find themselves sort of in the same situation. But quite frankly, all of us find ourselves in that situation. Why? Why, do, why does evil succeed? Why do the wicked seem to prosper? The first one I want us to read of is Asaph. Asaph is an interesting individual. He is someone who is in the prime of Israel's existence. And David has taken power. He's appointed. He's part of the Levitical priesthood that is in charge of the music that goes on for services. So he's in the prime of Israel's life. And yet he even asks, why? Why, does, why do the wicked prosper? And that's where I want us to first go to his question of why and, and how he dealt with it. Let's go to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. This is one of, if I remember right, 13 psalms that he has written. Most of them are in this section. His actually begins in the next number of psalms, 12 psalms, if I remember right, are, are his psalms. The first five are lament songs, songs where he's pouring out his heart to God. God, I don't understand this. God, I'm dealing with this. Help. And this is one of those songs. But it's also his testimony. And it's a powerful testimony. It's a testimony I related to. In fact, when I was uh, my freshman year in college, just after that, I went to camp, and we were all choosing a psalm that we wore as sort of, a, we, we made a, um, a baseball uniform top that had the, the scripture on your baseball. So like mine was psalm, and then the number 73. And that's what I wore, because that was the psalm that I identified with. And as I have grown up in time, I still come back to this psalm. Because it still has a lot of power to it. And it still reflects a lot of who I am. And so let's read it together. He says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Now understand, he grew up in a political society where he would have had religion, he would have had God's word spread to him day after day after day. He grew up in a family. Very similar to what I grew up in. A Christian, what we would call a Christian family. And he had that in front of him every single day. But I identify with what he says, but I almost slipped. I almost didn't understand what I had. Let's go on and read what he goes from there. He says, For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They close themselves with violence. Their callous hearts come, from their callous hearts come iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff. And they speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Does that sound familiar today? 
Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. In other words, I'm in control. God isn't. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are, or like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. And so he's looking at his life, and he comes from a religious family, and he's into the worship of God, but then he sees those that don't, that just live for themselves, and they're succeeding. And he says, I don't get it. And this is how he sums it up. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. He didn't get it until he took time to not just say, I don't get it. Till really he came to God and said, God, I don't get it. He went into the sanctuary of God. He asked the question, why do the wicked prosper? And in that, he had a revelation. He says, I understood their final destiny. Surely you will place them on slippery ground. You will cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit was embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. God, I wasn't thinking. I was trying to do it myself. I was trying to to make it work from a human point of view. I wasn't listening to you. But he understood as God revealed to him how God does handle the wicked. He goes on in verse 23, says, Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And my portion forever. You know, when I think of the, the idea of this portion, my portion forever. When you sit down to, let's, let's say you go to a covered dish supper. And you see somebody who you know has made a great cheesecake. Cheesecake, I love cheesecake, if it's done right. There are a lot of cheesecakes that aren't done right. Doorball, not done right. But when it comes to cheesecake, if it's a really good cheesecake and I know that it's there, my portion isn't just going to be a little piece. It's going to be big. What he's saying here is, 
you're my portion. You're all I need. I don't need anything else. You're, there's an abundance there. And even though I face the hard aches of life, my heart, my flesh may fail, I know where my real strength comes from. It comes from you. The fact that he is always with them, that you hold my right hand, you guide me, you tell me how to live life, and it is the right way to live life is what he's saying. And afterward, you will take me into glory. God gave him the understanding of what's ultimately important in life. It is not to make trivial the things that happen that are evil in life. I am not saying that at all. But what I am saying is, the psalmist, Asaph, understands that ultimately God is in control. And he will receive the glory not that he deserves but God has given him because he's been a follower and the wicked too will receive what they deserve and he has to rest in that peace even as he still faces the wicked prospering every single day we still face that today too don't we and I'm not just talking about what happens in Russia or the Ukraine it happens in our neighborhoods. And it's a question that is always there. And we always need to be able to respond to it and think about it of how we're called to live in the midst of that question. That's one person I wanted to look at tonight. There's a second individual I wanted to look at. We don't know a lot about this individual. It's Habakkuk. In Habakkuk, it's a small book. It's a, it's, it's a prophet who is also asking God, why? God, I don't get it. And in Habakkuk, in chapter 1, we see him asking the question, how long, how long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Boy, is he brave. Or rather, is he honest? I think I told you last time I preached, the number one thing God wants from us is honesty. He can't work with us if we pretend with him. If you're upset, you need to say you're upset. You need to have respect in that question. But you also say, this is where I'm at. This is what I'm feeling. I don't understand. And here's Habakkuk's complaint. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. You don't change the situation. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. The law is paralyzed. Justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. You ever thought that? Bet you have. The world doesn't operate the way Brad Barden wants it to. 
I'm glad it doesn't, quite frankly. But I do want justice. I don't want the wicked to prosper. I don't want law to be paralyzed. And what law is he talking about? He's talking about God's law. When Habakkuk writes this, he's in the midst of a people in in Judah that are struggling with their faith in God. Leadership is not there. In fact, leadership is to the negative, is to the wicked. And he sees it all day long. And as a believer in his God, he says, God, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be a nation for you. And yet every day I see destruction and violence. I see widows having their homes taken by rich people wanting to increase their lands. It's not right. So where are you, God? It's a bold statement. But it's an honest statement. And what God says to him, I'm not going to cover but you're welcome to read it, but it's it's not what you think it would be. God says, basically, you haven't seen anything yet. It's going to get a lot worse. It's not just going to be you people doing evil to yourselves. There are going to be these people called the Babylonians. And he's saying to Habakkuk, you know who the Babylonians are because they're already on the fringes. They're already a power that no one knows how to deal with. And they're on the outskirts of Judah. He says, they're coming. And they're going to be in control. And they're going to do wicked things. Horrible things. Because of the wickedness that has gone in Judah will continue to grow and fester to the point that it is judged. And God uses the Babylonians to take the Judeans into exile and in that to try to bring the people back to him. But God too has recognized wickedness is out of control and has to be dealt with. So God tells him that, and then in Habakkuk uh, chapter 1, 12 to 13, Habakkuk hears that, and then he complains again. (laughs) O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment, O rock. You have ordained them to punish. And he's talking about the Babylonians. God, you're using these evil people to come in and do what to us? And he says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? He's saying, God, we're bad, but we're not as bad as them. So why are you using them to punish us? 
He's a bold man. But he's an honest man. He goes on and uses the illustration. He says, the Babylonians are like a fisherman that has this big old net and he just scoops up all the fish. The scoop the fish are up there swimming, having a good time, just living their life, and all of a sudden this net comes and grabs them and takes them. That's not from the fish's point of view, that's not what you want. And Habakkuk's saying, God, I'm the fish. You're letting them take me? You're letting them take my people? To them, it's just an everyday task. To us, it's life and death. It is a hard place that Habakkuk finds himself. He says in verse 17, he uses that to finish that idea. He says, is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? Are you going to let them just keep on and on and on? Anybody remember Tito? Yeah, didn't think so. Yugoslavia, that ring a bell? One of the most oppressive dictators ever was. He was in the 60s, 70s, 80s a little bit. But y'all didn't remember him. Why? They come and go, don't they? We remember Hitler. We remember Stalin. But folks, 200 years from now, you mention some of these people's names that we think are so atrocious, they'll say, who's he? What did they do? It is always there, that wickedness. And you can look at that wickedness and say, it shouldn't be there. It shouldn't be there. And that's exactly what Habakkuk's saying. It shouldn't be there. There should be something better. Well, to answer Habakkuk, God responds. And this is how God responds. And, and I'm just going to start in, in chapter 2, verse 9. He says, woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain to set his nest on high. Y'all ever play king on the mountain? We used to have a dirt pile that there was always building going on in our neighborhood. There would always be a dirt pile where they had cleaned out for the foundation. And wherever there was a dirt pile, we'd play king on the mountain in the neighborhood. And you used every trick, mean, whatever, to be on top. But you didn't stay on top long because there was always somebody else who would do something a little bit worse or team up on you. Woe to him who builds his realm up by unjust gain to set his nest on high, to be king in the mountain. To escape the clutches of ruin, to say, I've arrived. You've plotted the ruin of many people, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Those things stay, but guess what? You won't. The stones will cry out, 
and you won't be there. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is the only fuel for the fire? You understand what he's saying there? The very things you're doing that are so wicked are actually going to bring you down. They're going to destroy you. You're just bringing fuel for the fire with the wicked things you do. Now, folks, when you're in the midst of that wickedness, when you're in Ukraine right now, that's a hard statement to hear. Because you see it literally in front of your face. But God's saying, the wicked will not triumph. In fact, their wickedness will destroy themselves. We've seen it time and time again through societies. Those that do evil will come on the scene and they will seem strong and will survive, but they will not thrive. Because God has it where the wickedness becomes a weight that will actually destroy them. How, when, and where, how fast, it doesn't happen as we would want it to, but it does happen. And ultimately, as we'll read here in a minute, that wickedness is judged not just for earth's sake, but for eternity's sake. It says, as it goes on, verse 13, Has not the Lord Almighty determined that a people's labor is the only fuel for fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? When you play king on the mountain as a child, it's a fun game. But you really don't gain anything. Well, what God is saying here is, you can strive, you can kill, you can try to be on top, but you really haven't gained anything. In fact, you've caused your own destruction. That's reality. And notice what he says next, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There will be a day when it is as it's supposed to be. When justice does reign. When the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will be as the water covers the sea. Anything else cover the sea other than water? No. It's everywhere. God's justice will come. It will be prevalent. It will be eternal. He goes on as we read. I'm going to read from Habakkuk 3.13 as he, Habakkuk takes all the sin that he's gotten as he's heard God and, and is spoke to God. He says, okay, what does that mean for me and where I am today? I'm still living in the midst of a wicked people. And wickedness is my future in terms of what surrounds me based on God, what you've said. 
This is what Habakkuk concludes. He says, you came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the seas with your horses, churning the great waters. That's what the wicked were doing, or so they thought. And this is Habakkuk's new viewpoint. As he's talked, as he's prayed, and as he's listened to God. I heard my heart, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. He's in a bad place. But then notice what he says next. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crops fail and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. Habakkuk saying, even though I'm going to face calamity, and when, he, when I read this today and I, I was thinking where there are no grapes on the vine, I'm, I'm thinking of the Ukraine and that town and how very well this year, there very, very well may not be no grapes on that vine. But even in the midst of that, in the wickedness that abounds, Habakkuk has learned God is my Savior. Can't trust in me because I can't do it. And folks, when, even when we as Christians have tried to bring justice on our own, it's sort of what Keith was mentioning this morning when uh, Abraham and Sarah were trying to have, to, to make the, the destiny of having a child happen. They did it on their own terms. It wasn't God's terms, it was their own terms. And Ishmael was born from Hagar. A lot of times we Christians try to bring God's justice ourselves. And when we do so, we also don't do well. There have been a lot of people who have done things in the name of Christianity to find themselves part of the wickedness that goes on. But God's in charge. God is my Savior, he says. And then notice how he says, the sovereign Lord is my strength. God is in control of it. Sovereign. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go onto the heights. That's a very different perspective from where he started out, isn't it? Did his situation change? No. In fact, he found out it was going to get worse. But he understood that he didn't understand. But he also understood that God's in charge. 
And ultimately the wicked will fail. And the righteous will have their day where they're with God in glory. One final place I want us to go just real briefly is a place in the New Testament where it also talks about this, perhaps in a way that you've not thought of before. But when Jesus teaches the people about prayer, something we call the Lord's Prayer, I think very much echoes what Asaph understood and what Habakkuk eventually understood and what we're called to understand too. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, we see the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Jesus, here as part of the Sermon on the Mount, has, has given instruction of, of many things. And he's, this is the section he talks about prayer. And he, he ends it by saying, this is how you ought to pray. You ever want to know how to pray? Come here first. It's a good place to start. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Keith talked about this a few months ago. How is separated, completely different. He's far above us. It's understanding our position with him. He's in control. He's sovereign, as Habakkuk would say. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Stop at that statement for a second. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that prayer mean? That part of the prayer mean? Is it as it's supposed to be now? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is saying, it isn't there, folks. The wicked do prosper. There is injustice. But you're to pray for justice. You're to pray for God's kingdom to come. For it to be on earth as it is in heaven. That's the prayer of Habakkuk. It should be our prayer too. It should be the prayer of the people of the Ukraine. In the midst of that, as we pray for God's ultimate will to be done, for justice to finally be shown, for the glory of God to fill the seas like the waters, until that happens... He says, pray also for your daily bread, for what you need to make it through today, for God's provision for you and what you face. Folks, when you pray for the people of the Ukraine, pray for that for them, for their daily bread. And I'm not just talking about the physical, I'm talking about the spiritual. I, I think of the guys who, who I met and 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 work with in that Baptist church. And my heart goes out to them. One, one of the things that he did was he showed me where his 
Baptist church used to be before the Soviet Union took over. I'm talking about before the Soviet Union took over, okay? Not Russia this time. His church used to be at a place that was on a corner. Beautiful building. You know what it was when he showed it to me? It was a convenience store. You know why? Soviet Union had taken all the churches and turned them into something else. His got turned into a convenience store. Now, because of what happened with the breakup of the Soviet Union, they were able to rebuild into a new place. In fact, a lot of money from the United States went to build that church once again. He had a church building to say, this is our church. But now he questions it. I'm sure. How much longer? What will happen this time? Part of what he told me is, even though that was our former building, our church never died. We kept on. We were called not to meet, but we met. We continued to teach. We continued to, to serve our God, even when we were told not to. Give us our daily bread. For the people of Ukraine, that means something different it means for us today. But both are true. God's provision for what we face this day. And then he says, forgive our debts, for we have also forgiven our debtors. What can I do in the midst of that? I can live the way God would tell me to. I've been forgiven, and I've got to live a life of forgiveness. No government can tell you not to do that, folks. You still have the power of God working in your life if we remember that. And then lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. Not a thing wrong with praying that prayer. Not a thing wrong with saying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We all should long for that. It is our portion. It is what we live for. But God has placed us in a time and a place where wicked do seem to prosper, at least from the world's standards. But there is a reality that is much different than the reality of this world. There's an eternal reality. Justice will prevail. God is sovereign. God is Savior. And God will destroy the wicked. And those who seek to forgive, those who seek his forgiveness, will live in the glory of the Lord. God, and I'm so glad that our, our faith is not one of those that, that some people claim it to be where if you just pray this way, God's going to bless you and everything's going to work out well. Folks, the Bible nowhere talks about that. If anything, it talks about the exact opposite is going to happen to you. 
But the reality is, that's looking at it from this world's standards. What God's trying to get us to do is to look at it from his point of view. Just as Asaph understood. Just as Habakkuk understood. And I pray, just as I try to understand. Close in prayer. Father, help us. This world makes no sense. For us, it's frustrating. For others, it's life and death, at least in terms of physical realities of this world. But God, I thank you that in the midst of that struggle, in the midst of what we see as evil, that is wicked, that your promise still holds true. That the righteous are not forsaken. That you will uphold. And your way will be proved to be the way. The truth and the life. Father may we hold on to that reality. As we live in a world that tries to pervert that reality. May we be thankful for you. And what you provide that we cannot as we encourage and as we spur one another on towards love and good deeds, as we pray for those who face persecution, who face the cruelty of this world. Father, we pray for your will to be done, your kingdom to come, and for it to be on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you for giving us that prayer. And the promise that it will be fulfilled. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.